If uh, anyone needs a handout uh, for taking notes, Bob will pass those out for you. Thanks, Bob. What can turn weeping into rejoicing, fear into peace, and doubt into faith? In our passage today, we see that the answer is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. John wants us to see that the Lord is risen and believe. Our first scene is in the garden containing the tomb where Jesus was buried. When we wrapped up looking at chapter 18 and 19 last week, we saw that Jesus was laid in a tomb, verse 42 of chapter 19, and that tomb was located in a garden, verse 41. Now we have someone returning to the place of Jesus' burial. The person who's returning is Mary Magdalene, and she comes, and she finds a surprising thing. Jesus is not in the tomb. Instead, he is alive and preparing to ascend. That's what we see from this first section here, verses 1 through 18. But at first, she just sees that the stone is rolled away. And we know from the other Gospels that there was a seal placed on the tomb, that there was a guard posted. This Gospel does not emphasize those things. What's emphasized here is the fact that the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away, and she looks, and she is sure that someone has also taken his body. So she comes to find the disciples, Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple we see to be a reference to John, who is the author of this gospel. For a variety of reasons, we won't go into all the details of them at the moment, but uh, this is Simon Peter and John. They run to the tomb after they hear Mary's words. They're running together. John comes first, but he doesn't go in. Peter catches up second, actually goes in and looks, and he sees there something surprising. If you're going to steal a body, what you would not do is take, in our present day sort of scenario, you wouldn't take the clothes off the body and then take the body away. You would just take the whole thing. And in the same way, if they were going to steal the body of Jesus, they wouldn't unwrap the body and remove all the spices and, and take the face cloth off the head. They would just take the whole thing away. So there's something odd about the fact that the body is missing but the clothing, the, the, the wrappings that they had buried him with, remained. And we see a, uh, another interesting thing here in verse 9, where it says, or verse 8, where it says, they, the second disciple saw and believed. They did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So in what sense did they believe if they didn't understand what had happened? I think at the very least, they believed and acknowledged that some miraculous work of God had taken place. What I think they had not yet made the connection about was that what had happened was Jesus is in fact alive, not just gone from the tomb, but alive and walking about and risen, even as he had said. Mary does not immediately go home, even though the disciples do, verse 10. She is still distraught. She's weeping. She's standing outside the tomb. She's 
wondering what could have happened. She's not satisfied with just, he's gone. She wants to know, where did he go? What happened? And she sees, in verse 11, Stoops looks into the tomb, and she sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now, if you and I saw angels, you would expect to be some measure of surprise, some measure of, this is unusual. And she's so overwhelmed by, by grief, focused on this question of what has happened to the body of Jesus, that she just has a normal conversation with them. Woman, why are you weeping? She says, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And then it seems the angels go, or at least they're not mentioned again. And so, unlike some of the encounters where someone sees an angel and is just overwhelmed by the fact that this is an angel and they, you know, they fall down or they're terrified or something like this, like at the announcement of Jesus, the shepherds are afraid when the angel appears to them at first. She just talks to them and then turns away and they're not mentioned anymore. But she sees someone far more important. She turned around and saw Jesus and did not know that it was Jesus. And people have argued, well, why didn't she know that it was Jesus? Was it that his body looked different somehow? But there is continuity between the body of Jesus at the crucifixion and his risen body, given the fact of what we see with Thomas at the end of the passage. He still bears the scars of the crucifixion, even though his body has been restored and brought back to life and perfected. And so, it doesn't seem to be an issue that his face or his body look different. It seems to be something parallel to what we see in the Gospel of Luke, which is there's those two disciples that walk with Jesus on this road to Emmaus, and they talk for what seems to be several hours, and it's not until the very end that Jesus makes himself known to them. And so, it seems to be a temporary, uh, not, not blindness per se, but lack of awareness that Jesus puts on Mary and then reveals himself to her in this crucial moment. Notice that he asks the same question that the angels asked, Woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds to it the same question that he asked when Judas and the rest had come to betray him. Whom do you seek? Here, whom are you seeking? She says, Sir, a polite term of respect, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She's concerned for the body of Jesus. She wishes to restore it to a place of honor, put it back where it belongs, and have help closing the door and honor him in that way. She thinks Jesus is just the gardener because she's in a garden. She doesn't expect anyone else to be there at this particular hour of the day. Jesus turns to her and says one word, Mary. And something about the way and what it is that he says to her, she realizes that it's Jesus. And she turns to him and says, Rabboni, which means teacher, yes, but, but, but more something along the lines of my dear teacher. There's a, a term of respect, but also affection. And then Jesus says a surprising thing, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now some people have taken this and they've said, well, that means that it was bad for her to touch him, and so that's why he says, Stop clinging to me, like, like she tries to give him a hug, and he's like, No, you can't, there can't be any contact between us or something like that. But that doesn't seem to be the case, given what happens later in the passage, where he actually invites Thomas to touch his hands and his side. So what then is the significance of this statement by Jesus, don't cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father? 
I think it is a very gentle rebuke that parallels the sorts of conversations he's had with the disciples. Here's the Father's plan. The Father's plan is for Jesus to ascend. Mary, though she is overjoyed at seeing Jesus again, can't cling to him because the purpose of the Father and the purpose of Jesus, what's happening next for him, is that he's going to ascend to the Father. And so the relationship is not going to be one where they sit down and enjoy a meal together, where there's a hug or a kiss of greeting or anything like that. It's going to be one in which he's here for a brief time. They see that he is risen, and then he ascends to God the Father, restored to his former glory because of his obedient sacrifice that we saw in chapters 18 and 19. Jesus also sends her to do something. He says, Go and tell the, my brethren, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So we're going to see Jesus sees someone and then appoints them to a task. We're going to see the same thing in the next section. The second scene that we come across, after seeing that Jesus is not in the tomb, but alive and preparing to ascend to God the Father, we come now to the upper room where they had celebrated, most likely, the uh, Passover, the, the Lord's table as we would think today and what we observe today. They're in this room. What's the nature of them being in this room? The, the doors are shut. Why are the doors shut? For fear of the Jews. The disciples are hiding. So Jesus said, wait and I will, will come to you. But the disciples are distraught. Jesus has been crucified, they've been scattered, now they're hiding for fear of the Jews. It seems that the Romans and the Jews, the religious leaders, have prevailed, and Jesus is not coming back. Despite the fact that just that morning, Peter and John had seen Jesus' body is not in the tomb. And so there's belief, but not yet a full and, and deep belief, because they're hiding up in this room. And then what happens? Another surprising thing. Suddenly Jesus is there in the midst of them in the room. Why does John point out that the door is locked? The doors are shut? To emphasize the surprising nature that Jesus is suddenly standing among them. Now, again, this is one of these things where people want to get into all sorts of arguments. Is In a resurrection body, can you teleport? In a resurrection body, can you pass through walls? It's not really the point of this. The point of this is there's this miraculous appearance of Jesus in response to their great fear, and he manifests himself to them. And notice his greeting, uh, a typical greeting that we see throughout the scriptures when God reveals himself to men and reassures them, despite their weakness, their sinfulness, and his great glory, that he is coming to speak to them, to reveal himself. He says, peace be with you. We see this over and over again throughout Scripture, whether it's an angelic messenger or, or, or God himself. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Notice that they don't rejoice when he appears in the room. What do they have to see before they rejoice that he is the Lord? Physical proof of who he is. We really get on Thomas's case for not believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is risen from the dead. But the rest, of the, the rest of the disciples didn't take it to the same degree as Thomas, but they were not expressing faith either or, or rejoicing in Jesus having returned until they saw the exact same thing that Thomas wanted to see. And so there's not so great a gap between the rest of the disciples and Thomas as I think we sometimes make out. So Jesus brings peace and he sends his disciples out to minister. First, the disciples are fearing and sorrowing. 
But Jesus instead is bringing them peace and joy. They go from their fear to a, a state of confidence. They go from their sorrow that he is gone to joy that he has returned. Now he sends them out. They're hiding, but he says, I'm going to send you to do ministry that I'm calling you to do. He repeats his statement, Peace be with you, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So even as we stress this parallel between the experiences of Jesus and the experiences of those who follow him with regard to persecution and suffering and even death, if you follow Jesus, the normal expectation of how you think your life should go is not that your life will be easier and better, you'll have all the money that you want, you'll have everything that you think you might ever like to get out of this life, your expectation as a believer is that as you live for God, people are not going to like you. As you live for God, your life is going to be difficult. As you live for God, your hopes and dreams will not be fulfilled if they are tied to what this world values. And even here, Jesus again stresses this union between himself and his disciples, the parallel between his ministry and their ministry, and says, God the Father sent me, now I send you. Now what is he sending them to do? Well, ultimately we see in the book of Acts that he sends them to proclaim the gospel throughout the known world. But here he says, first of all, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, people get into all sorts of arguments about this. When does the Spirit actually come? And I think probably the best explanation is something that I was looking at in one of the commentaries. John is less concerned about the chronology of these events and more concerned about making clear what is taking place, the connection between the ministry of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Which is to say, John's not saying in this moment that the Spirit is coming per se, what we see in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He is, in much the way that Paul talks about the down payment of the Spirit, um, or the Spirit being the down payment of our salvation, these words of Jesus are, are reassuring the disciples that the Spirit is in fact coming. So we're not saying the Spirit comes in this moment, but he's saying, receive the Spirit. He's going to come to you. Acts 1 says he sent them to wait. Then the Spirit actually comes in Acts 2. The Spirit is the one who's going to stand behind their work. The Spirit is the one who's the main character of the book of Acts. All of the acts of the apostles are ultimately the acts of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here is commissioning them and sending, uh, promising them the comforter that he's already promised, for example, in John 16, 15 and 16. And then he says another surprising thing in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Sometimes people have taken that phrase to mean that God gave through Jesus the authority to forgive sins to these ten apostles, and only to these ten apostles. And the reality is, uh, that's where some of the false theology in various church groups has come in, where they've said, well, some kind of priest or church official has the, the ability to forgive your sins. And the reality is, their authority to forgive sins or not to forgive sins is not ultimately belonging to them. It's a delegated authority. What stands behind it is the authority of Jesus, and this forgiving or lack of forgiveness is tied to one thing and one thing only, which is, does a person receive Jesus 
as this passage calls them to do, as the risen Lord and God. We'll see that confession in just a few more verses. That is the basis on which a person's sins are forgiven or not forgiven. It's not an isolated thing in which the apostle comes up to someone and says, all right, your sins are forgiven, yours aren't, yours aren't, yours are. It's not an arbitrary thing. It's not something the apostles did in isolation from the work that God the Father was doing through the Spirit on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ. It is instead a commission and authority basically connected with the proclamation of the gospel. And so Jesus is sending the apostles in the power of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel in connection with the forgiveness of sins, which parallels what we see, for example, at the end of the book of Matthew, what we would call the Great Commission passage. And so instead of trying to make these things fight against each other, we should see them as complementing one another. Jesus has been sent by God the Father. Now he ascends to God the Father. But as I said last week and the week before that, Jesus' ministry does not end simply because he is returning to the Father. His ministry continues through the apostles and, and all of those who believe the gospel through their preaching as the church is built and goes down through the ages. We come now to this last section, the third scene. Same place, this room, it says eight days later, Probably best to understand this as an inclusive eight, Sunday to Sunday, but um, other than in terms of setting a pattern, it doesn't change the events of what takes place. They're gathered again. Thomas is not gathered the first time. He makes this bold statement, kind of reminds us of Peter, right? But what has happened to Peter? Peter's denied Christ. So Peter's not sulking, but subdued, perhaps, in the background. Thomas is now the one who's standing up, making this bold statement, well, if I see proof, I'll believe, but otherwise, no. And what happens? They're again inside, verse 26, Thomas with them. Jesus comes. Peace be with you. Can you imagine what's going through Thomas's mind and heart as he sees Jesus after he's just made this bold declaration of, I'm not going to believe unless I see him face to face. Now he sees him face to face. Now Jesus invites him, reach here, touch my hands, put your hand on my side, see the scars, the wounds that I bore when I was crucified for sin. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. We don't even have a record that Thomas does the thing that Jesus invites him to do. He just simply stands there and he says, in repentance and acknowledgement of who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. And this sums up quite well the point that John has been making all throughout his book. Jesus is not just the son of a carpenter. Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just an interesting historical fig figure. Jesus is both Lord, King, and God. And we can't take him as anything else. You know, C.S. Lewis said that we have to take Jesus as either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And the reality is there's more possibilities than just those three. But the conclusion that this passage and the rest of the book of John argues for is this. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe in him? Jesus gives this rebuke to Thomas. 
Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And perhaps this was a mild rebuke to the rest of the disciples because they too did not seem to acknowledge Jesus is who he is until they saw him in the physical proof of his resurrected body. John wants us to see that the Lord is risen and to believe. What is the significance of the resurrection? Turn back with me, if you would, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, is the description of Jesus cleansing the temple. Remember that there were people who were uh, taking advantage of those who traveled at great distance and charging them unfavorable exchange rates and selling them the things they needed to make sacrifices to God, but they basically turned the temple courts into a place of business instead of a place of prayer. And when he drives them out, the Jews said, What sign did you show us? Verse 18 is your authority for doing these things. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They look, as often happens in the book of John, at a physical object and miss the spiritual truth that he's using it to illustrate. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead... So what we just looked at in John chapter 20, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Notice what John says next in John chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed. Why does he say many other signs? Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the last and greatest sign that he performs that John records for us that testify to the fact that he is both Lord and God. Many other things Jesus did. But these were recorded specifically, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the purpose statement for the whole book. Why does John write his book? Why does he pick these specific signs to reveal Jesus to his audience? So that you would believe, and in believing you would have life. Thinking back through the different characters that we see in this story. Do you have the hope that the resurrection is real or are you full of grief? Mary is full of grief when we encounter her in the first section of John 20. But then that grief is turned to joy when she sees Jesus face to face. In our world, we are filled with grief if we lack the assurance that there is such a thing as a resurrection. And more importantly, if we lack understanding about what that means. I mean, it's one thing to believe generically in the possibility of someone to be raised from the dead. It's another thing to believe, as the New Testament lays out for us, that Jesus is the firstborn of those who will be raised from the dead, which is to say, his resurrection marks the beginning of a new era in which we will participate. And so it's not just, is this theoretically possible? 
but rather this has happened and here is the one to whom it has happened and when you are raised you will be joined with him even as you are already joined with him as one who follows after him and so there is a, a unique thing that's going on here and so you know I, I don't want you to miss that when we talk about the resurrection it's not so much about an event but about the person who experienced and performed the event which is Jesus himself it's not we believe in people getting resurrected it's that we believe Jesus is resurrected and therefore we too will be resurrected do you have the peace that Jesus offers or are you fearful Jesus calls us as his people to do many things and oftentimes more often than we care to admit we're like the disciples we're cowering in fear isolated not willing to do what God is calling us to do. What do we need in order to fulfill what he's called us to do? We need that the peace that he offers as the resurrected Lord. And only he can give that to us. And he has sent us out even as he has sent the disciples out. But we're not going to go out and serve him as we should if we are full of fear instead of the power that comes through love and relationship with him. And then considering the disciples and also the example of Thomas, do you believe without seeing or are you full of doubt? And I'll be honest, this is probably the one that I've struggled with most in the last, especially the last four and a half weeks, but um, even before that when we found out that Kelly was sick, what is God trying to accomplish in your life? What is God trying to accomplish in my life? Do we have to see our hopes and expectations fulfilled right in front of our eyes to believe that God is who he says he is and that he is doing what he has promised to do? Or do we trust him even when we don't know what's coming next? That's the challenge. Because we want to see around the corner to what's coming next and the thing after that and the thing after that. Maybe you are setting out on all of these things through your life because you're still a child living at home and so it feels like you have your whole life ahead of you. You're anticipating getting married and you have all these plans for what's going to take place you're middle-aged, you feel like you're drawing near the end of your life, whatever, wherever you find yourself, there are these things that we don't anticipate that are right around the corner, and we, we want to know what they are, and apart from knowing what they are, we feel like, well, we can't really trust God, because what if it's something that we don't really want, something that's really hard, something that we can't bear to experience? Are we like Thomas and the rest of the disciples? And do we only believe in the things that are right in front of us that we can see right here and now? Or do we, like the author of Hebrews says, recognize that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen? The resurrection of Jesus is one of those things that we have to accept and believe and anticipate without actually seeing because once we have experienced it, we no longer need faith because it has been made sight. 
We only need faith while we're experiencing life on this earth, and we haven't yet experienced that hope of the resurrection. So Jesus performed all these signs, and John recorded them for us, so that we would believe. Not a generic belief like, I have faith. Well, faith demands an object. It's not just, I have faith. Okay, great. What's your faith in? I don't know. I just believe. That's, that's no real faith. The sort of faith that John is calling us to, that Jesus calls his people to, is faith in himself. The greatest example of this being the events surrounding his betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial, resurrection, and his ascension to return to God the Father. Do you believe in Jesus, the Jesus who actually did all of these things, the Jesus who is yet alive today? Or do you believe in some empty thing, some conception of people, some rituals of some church? None of those things will save you. Jesus, the living and risen Lord, he is the one who offers salvation. He is the one who, as John says here, gives you life through his name. And so my hope and prayer is that you would see that the Lord is risen and believe, that you have come to terms with the fact that, as Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one path to God, and it is Jesus. There is one hope of salvation, and it is Jesus. There is one purpose for which we are to live our lives, and he is Jesus. And apart from that, there are many things that we can do, there are many things that we can trust in, and all of them will fail us, and all of them are empty promises and hopes and dreams with which out to focus our lives on. But as this book points us to, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believe you may have life in his name. You say, I have believed that. I've begun to believe that. Okay? Then that demands two things. One, that you continue believing it because it's not that I believed this a long time ago, prayed a prayer, and then I just do my own thing. It's that this is what you are presently believing right now. That is the mark of a true believer. John expands on this in the book of 1 John. Do you believe in Jesus right now? Not did you write something in a Bible long ago. And secondly, are you telling other people about him? Because this book was not written so that one person believes in Jesus, and we say, okay, we're done, we can all go home but so that all that God has purposed to give to his son Jesus Christ to be brought with him to heaven in resurrection would be brought in the sheepfold, as Jesus talked about in John 10, would be brought to be added to the church, as we see in the book of Acts. And the way that God does that is through you and I individually telling people about him. And on one hand, this is hard, because sometimes we don't know where to start with that with people, and on the other hand, it's very simple. You just have to take a moment, ask someone a question, start that conversation with them, and point them to Jesus. So that not just for you, but also for that other person, they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and receive the life 
that comes through following Him in His name. See that the Lord is risen and believe. Let's pray. Dear God, there are great and profound truths in this passage. I pray that they would be clear in our hearts and minds. Help us to believe as you call us to here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.